despite persecution in China, despite it being illegal to gather in Iran, and the whole history you know of how the church has been persecuted in Cuba, despite all of those things, remember the book of Acts. We're going to be looking together at Acts chapter 11. That God uses persecution. As Craig reminded us this morning, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the kingdom of God and its spread. If you need that kind of encouragement this morning, that reminder that the gospel is flourishing and bearing fruit throughout the world, come and join uh, Jameson and I for the Equip Hour. We're looking forward to meeting you and being together for that encouragement this morning. Well, I have several questions for you this morning, but one basic question. What does it mean to be Christians? This was an urgent question for the early followers of Jesus, and Luke is answering that question with his second volume. You know, Luke wrote the gospel by, that bears his name, and in that book, he is mainly focused on the question, who is Jesus? But then as he begins to write a second volume, he's dealing with an interesting and difficult problem. The followers of Jesus have been evicted from the synagogue. They're homeless. They're looking for and trying to figure out their place in the world. What does it mean to be the people of God now? They look and they find, you know, Roman associations. They look at the schools. And they settle in the households. But we were called Christians first at Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire and a melting pot. We read this morning, we were reminded in the assurance of pardon this morning, that the Lord makes no distinction that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In our reading we hopefully felt some of the discomfort that Jonah felt. You remember that Jonah was not the most, uh, you know, eager to go to Nineveh. But our Lord is not just the Lord of the Jews. Our God is not just the God of Israel. He is the Lord of the Ninevites. He is the Lord of the Romans. He is the Lord of of the Americans. He's the Lord of the Ugandans. He's the Lord of the Chinese. He makes no distinction. Our God is a God of grace, a God of mercy, who is restoring the entire world that he has made to himself, to intimate covenant relationship with himself through his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out on his people who he now calls his witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and throughout even to the ends of the earth. What do you think about? What comes to mind when someone names the name Christian? I hope that, of course, follower of Christ comes to mind. But maybe you think of other things as well. Some think of Western. Christianity is called a Western religion. But we just sang this morning, no, not only from the West, but also from the East. Maybe you think conservative or traditional. Maybe you think justice or righteousness. But guess what? 
the word Christian, the label, the name Christian is category defined. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 11 this morning. You can't really put the Lord of all the nations in a box. Nor can you really place his people who are bearing witness to him and to his kingdom in the usual boxes and lines that every culture wants to press upon God's people. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 11. We're going to begin our reading this morning in verse 19. But before we start reading, let's pray together and seek the Lord's help. Spirit of holiness, Spirit of Pentecost, we need your help this morning. We come before Luke's words, thankful for this text, thankful that he had set about to answer this question. What does it mean to be the people of God? Because, Lord, we need help, too, answering that question this morning. We, too, are feeling seismic shifts in our own culture, the winds of of change, just like your early followers. We need your guidance. We need your help. So, Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would ready our minds and our feet and our hands for action, that we might act upon your word, that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. We ask it for the glory of your great name, not for ours. The name of Jesus is the name in which we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 11 beginning our reading in verse 19. This is the authoritative, powerful Word of God, the living Word of God. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the Word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and by the hand of Saul." And reading also from chapter 13, the first couple of verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. This is the word of our Lord. Do you remember what it was like to be called a name? Maybe it winces a little bit even this morning to think about it. You were on the playground at school or you were in the lunchroom. And right then, you were called a name and the reason was to somehow say, you're not one of us. You're a stranger. You don't belong with us. You belong over there at that table. Well, that's what's going on at Antioch. It is not a good thing. This idea of being called Christians, it was name-calling. You're not part of us. You're not like us. You guys are weird. So here's the question I have then. What was it that made Jesus' followers at Antioch stick out? What were some of the distinctive identifying markers that drew attention to them and to their Lord? I want to suggest this morning that there are four things that we see in this passage that really mark out those who were first called Christians and still are to mark us out today because they fulfill the pattern that's established in Pentecost. Last Sunday, your pastor was preaching how the risen, ascended Lord poured out His Spirit upon His people, empowering them for witness, drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of all, but also drawing attention to the fact that we are given a mission to bear witness to His mercy, to bear witness to His grace. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's really the first thing that sticks out about these funny people in Antioch. They develop radically inclusive friendships. Isn't it the case that it's still a problem? I don't know about you, but cliques were a problem in my middle school and my high school. Clicks are a problem in our political life. It's birds of a feather flock together. We see it that people from the same ethnic background, people from the same educational background, they sort of hang out with each other. But here's something strange. The early Christians were gathering together not just Jews, not just those who spoke Aramaic, but these Greek speakers as well. And we just read earlier in chapter 11, or Luke had just written about Cornelius. Now, isn't that strange? That a military commander of the occupying force who is in your land, on your soil, is now called a brother in your family? The early Christians were always crossing the line. They did not accept the categories of their culture. That just because someone said or someone pressured 
that this is the way we do things, that actually that wasn't enough because, you see, the Lord doesn't make a distinction as we read this morning from Romans chapter 10. Anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's just not in theory. That actually makes a difference in the presence of God's people. You actually see Jews and Gentiles showing up together, men and women gathering together, different social classes gathering together to worship the one living and true Lord. There's a second thing we're going to look at this morning. It's also that Christians are marked by a strong integrity between their words and their deeds. Christians are not just known for their gracious words, they're also known for their material generosity, as we see in this passage. And thirdly, you might ask, well, how does this even happen? Well, we began to see that when Barnabas goes and finds Saul, who he advocated for earlier. How is this distinctive, category-defying life nourished? By in-depth, holistic discipleship in every arena of life. For a whole year, they are teaching and they are learning together. What does it mean to follow this Jesus? Not just in our prayer life, but in our work life, in our family life, in our life as citizens of this particular part of the world. What does it mean to, to learn Christ, to be Christ's partisans? in this particular place together. And then the the last thing that we see that's repeated over and over in our passage, and let me just point it out if, if I could. Take a look at the end of verse 21. We see it there. That a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The the distinctive marker that sort of is the umbrella for all of the markers is that this people has turned away from a former way of life that characterized them. They are a people of repentance, and they have turned to the Lord. Notice it says again, right here, uh, it says that those who believe turn to the Lord. Um, Barnabas said, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then it says in verse 24, they were added to the Lord, actually united to the Lord. So these four things, radically inclusive friendships, a strong integrity between word and deed, in-depth holistic teaching about what it means to follow Jesus, and then that overarching category, Christians are the people who have turned to the Lord. Well, first, Christians are known for their radically inclusive friendships. Let's look at that together. Verse 19 tells us a lot about Luke's audience. Luke was writing to a mixed crowd. Luke is writing to all of the churches scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin. All these different households that have taken root. And he's making a case. He's trying to say to them, Brothers and sisters, we belong to each other. 
Yes, we are from all these different backgrounds, all these different ethnic groups. We speak different languages, but remember Pentecost. Remember the beginning of our life together. We heard the good news about the mighty deeds of God in our own language. And where is all this going? John gives us that vision, that vision of worship before the Lord of all, the slain lamb, that from every tribe and language and nation, God is gathering a people for himself, purchased a people for himself. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and master, sharing the same bread, the same wine, the same king, the same space, in fellowship with one another, sharing their money together. If there's a need in their midst, they sell their property so that they can take care of each other. Those who are now their brothers and their sisters, their fathers and their mothers. One household of God brought about through inclusive evangelism, through sharing the good news through peculiar friendships, crossing these lines. We just saw it earlier in chapter 11. Peter reluctantly, after three visions, it takes three visions to get him over to Cornelius' house. Echoes of Jonah that we read this morning, right? Jonah didn't want to go. But put yourself in Peter's shoes. He had witnessed people that he knew being subscribed, being drafted to serve the Roman soldiers. Instead of being able to plow their fields, they now had to carry the supplies of the Roman soldiers. And then Peter's community had to scramble. Well, how are we going to get the fields plowed? All for what? So that we can pay onerous taxes to the Romans. He doesn't want to go. There's a lot of history back there. There's a lot of deep wounds back there. And Jesus is saying, my justice is not just punitive justice. My justice is restorative justice. The gospel is good news about how God takes enemies and makes them family members. How he takes a persecutor like Saul and makes him his chief prophet. Brings him into the family. Because our God is merciful. Our God's grace knows no boundaries. It is lavish. The death of our Savior is enough for whatever your sins are, whatever my sins are, and whatever the sins of Cornelius were. As Peter is telling the story about how God has sent his son and raised him up, even as he's telling that story and recounting it and gets to the point of Pentecost, how Jesus poured out his spirit, that's exactly what happens in Cornelius' house. The spirit comes upon them. And Peter learned something that day. Something really important that all of us who name the name of Christ need to remember. We are all cleansed in the same way. We're cleansed by the mercy of God. 
We're cleansed by the action of the Holy Spirit. We're cleansed by the gift of faith and repentance. That in the same way, the pagans are brought into the family and cleansed just like God's covenant people, the Jews. Because our God is not a God of the Jew only, but also of the pagan as well. Verse 20 is a very important verse. It says that those who were coming to Antioch were not only speaking the word to the Jews, like in verse 19, they were also preaching the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists. This is a turning point in Acts. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, these are all Jews or those who are half-breeds, the Samaritans, right? But Jesus restores the whole household to himself. But now something new is happening. Now we're going outside of Judea and Samaria. We're going to the ends of the earth, and there's no turning back. In 2016, I had the privilege of meeting our sister Rose Mapendo in Phoenix. Like Peter, Rose had to cross the line and share good news with an enemy. It wasn't an easy thing. You see, back in the late 90s, with the support of the Congolese government, militias from Rwanda were rounding up and capturing and killing many Tutsi men in particular, and Rose's husband was among them. Rose was pregnant with twins, given no provisions, captured and held into a camp by the very people who had killed her husband. Given no provisions, she was scrounging for food and praying to the Lord. And she was not, she was not happy with what she was hearing. That scene of Stephen before his persecutors kept coming to her mind, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do not hold this sin against them. She didn't like that answer, so she, she went back, and then she came back the next day, and she prayed again, but the same scene kept coming to her mind. She told me, she said, God gives everyone a choice even, the worst, even in the worst circumstances. Jesus decided to lay down his life for me. I made a decision to forgive the people who thought of me as their enemy. And when I did, I became free. It's really remarkable the wisdom that God gave to Rose. She came before the generals, the two generals who had been in charge of the group that had killed her husband. And she decided, with the Lord's help, to name her twins after those two generals. She named them after those generals. She said, I am not your enemy. I am your sister. I am your neighbor. I am your fellow human being. We're part of the same family, made in the same image of God. Sinners in need of God's mercy. Mercy that he's shown us through 
Jesus. Now, the effect on these generals was remarkable. They were afraid of Rose. They thought that Rose had put a curse on them by naming her babies after them. But something happened to the wives of these generals. They saw in Rose a fellow mother, a fellow sister and woman, a courageous woman. And so immediately they brought her tea and they brought her clothes that she so desperately needed for herself and for her children. They recognized that indeed they were made of the same stuff. They were part of the same family. They accepted what Rose had said to them. The generals weren't having it, so they ordered Rose's transfer and put her on a transport to Cameroon. And that's what started the resettlement process and why one day, many years later, I was able to meet her in Phoenix when she had come here as a refugee. God uses even persecution to spread his word and spirit. Why? How? Because we walk in his steps. That's what Peter said to those being persecuted in Asia Mitre. We bear his name. We, like him, associate with all kinds of people. Look back with me, if you would, at verse 22. The report came to Barnabas, uh, to the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. This is really remarkable. Verse 23 says that when he came, they saw, he saw the grace of God. I want you to think about that. Somehow, grace is seeable. Not just hearing about the grace of God, but seeing grace with skin on. The second distinctive marker of those who bear the name Christian is this incredible integrity between their words and their deeds, between their gracious words and their material generosity. I have a student at Third Mill Seminary. His name is Shane Paxa. He and his wife, Jemima, are from Australia. They've been in the Kiev, Ukraine for the last 11 years, ministering there, planted a church uh, alongside the Ukrainians, a, a Ukrainian pastor. And uh, one day recently, Shane sent us a video. He took his iPhone. He was walking through his church building, giving us sort of a tour. And all throughout the building, in the aisles and around all different places, everywhere you could see, there were little pup tents. Little tents where all of the people who were coming through their church were camping, trying to figure out where they were going next. Every day, the people of the church were standing around little card tables, and they were packing little plastic bags with medicine and with food. And then the teams would go out. They would go out into the basements of where church members lived. They would go out into subways where they knew people were gathered, and they would distribute the food and the medicine. And then when the time came, when the shuttle was ready, some of those pup tents would, dis would pack up and disappear. They'd shuttle people to Lviv to the west, and some could get away into, into safety. Shane and Jemima and the people of their church were doing gospel show and tell. 
not just preaching the good news, but being good news to those who were coming for help. What does Jeremiah say? What does the psalmist say? Taste and see the Lord is good. Soon we're coming to his table. He's given to us not only his word, not only things that we must believe, he is giving us himself in bread and wine. He has become flesh for us. The second thing that is true of those who bear the name of Christ is this incredible integrity between gracious words and acts of grace. He's called us to be grace with skin on. Now Barnabas, though, he knows exhibit A of God's grace. He goes looking for Saul. He knows Saul's story. The one who had persecuted the church, the one who'd been standing there and giving approval when Stephen was stoned. And he goes and finds Saul in Tarsus and he brings him. And together for a whole year, they teach the church at Antioch. This is the third distinctive marker. How is it that we can be nourished and energized to cross these lines, to have this kind of integrity? It has to be by the power of the Word and the Spirit. That is the testimony of Acts. We must lean hard into the Spirit's grace, into the means of grace, into the Scriptures. And Barnabas knows the guy the guy who's trained as a Pharisee, the guy who's deeply trained in Israel's scriptures. He goes and he gets them, and yet this guy's been changed. This guy has turned away from all the things that he counted wonderful on his resume, and he counts them loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And so for a whole year, together they do like Jesus did. Think about it with me for just a second. When you read the Gospel of Luke, you do not see Jesus in a classroom. You do not see Jesus even in the synagogue very often. Jesus is on the move. It's on location Bible studies. Everywhere he goes, sitting around tables with people, standing in a boat, standing on a hillside, walking in the way, on the way to Jerusalem, he is constantly teaching the Scriptures. It's gospel show and tell. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And he walks into the situation and he tells a story about the way in which the rich man and the poor man should relate when the kingdom is present. Or he tells the story about the Samaritan and he says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is how we're to relate as neighbors. And so isn't it amazing? That is exactly what Saul does. That is what Saul become Paul does. We get a sense of that in Ephesians chapter 4. He, he comes into Ephesus and he, he's going to every arena of life. And he says, here's what the gospel does for us. Here's what turning to the Lord looks like in every arena of life. We, we stop stealing with our hands and we start working with them so that we will have something to give to those in need. We stop lying to our neighbors and we start speaking the truth in love. Instead of playing by all the lines of our culture, we cross lines as instruments of reconciliation. 
Because Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And so he has this amazing picture. We take off the practices of the old self and we put on Jesus. That is the overarching mark of what it means to be Christians. We are the people who have given up on ourselves given up on our own practices, given up on the practices of our cultures and those who are telling us how to live, and we are going Jesus' way because he has saved us from ourselves. He has saved us from our sins. And he's giving us a new life, a new life in the new creation. And he's calling us as his partisans Not partisan Republicans, not partisan Democrats, not partisan Westerners, not partisan Easterners, not partisan Americans, not partisan Chinese, but the people who belong to the Lord of all the nations. He's enlisting us as his partisans, as his witnesses that will cross the lines, make unusual, weird friendships. Because Jesus crossed the line. He came from the majesty of heaven right to where you are, right to where I am. And he gives us by the power of his word and his spirit a new integrity that limping along bit by bit, imperfectly of course, we begin to have words that match deeds and deeds that match words. How is this possible? Only if we practice holistic disciple-making. If we are going to the nations, not just to say, this is the good news, repent of your sins, but to teach them. As we ourselves are learning, what does it look like to take off the practices of the old self in our economic life? What does it look like to take off the practices of the old self in our political life? What does it look like to take off the practices of the old self and how we relate to our families and put on Jesus? Those who are called Christians, first at Antioch, were being called a name. They're being name-called. But they bore it gladly because it was the name of their Savior. Those who are called Christians have turned to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your people here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. From different backgrounds, different generations, different educational experiences, different extended family wounds and joys. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which you're bringing together a people here to be witnesses to bear witness to your mercy, to be graced with skin on. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have of partnering together as congregations scattered throughout your world that as Luke wrote, we belong to each other, that we're part of one household. Lord, thank you for calling us and for adding us to yourself that we might be called by your name, the name Christian. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.